0: This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich in conversation with Bill, who's had a long and very productive career in law enforcement, including a stint as the director of public safety and chief of campus police at Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's what we're reflecting on today with you, Bill. You wrote a very impressive piece called Schooled in Community Policing. And I, for one, and I can probably speak for many civilians and listeners out there, didn't realize a lot of things, the importance of campus police in providing safety, the multifaceted roles of campus police these days, the well-trained individuals that are doing it, and some of the pressures and challenges they face. So thank you for sharing with us today on this podcast your thoughts on community policing on college campuses.
1: It's huge, and and I knew nothing about it, um, and and I knew little about about community policing, honestly. From the agency I came from, uh, a large state state policing agency doesn't have that same connection with the community, if you will, that a city or a town does, and. Now I know what a college and university has.
0: Well, it's a microcosm in a way of cities and towns uh, because it's structured in many of the same ways. But there are many differences. What's different about a college campus from a police department's perspective?
1: There are so many different things. First of all, um, when you're working with a community – um, by and large, the people in the community have been there all their lives or they've been there for several years or they intend to stay there for several years. When you're dealing with a college community, you're dealing with people that are only going to be there for two years or four years or five years, um, and then they're gone. So every year, it's almost like a re-education um, to the new crop that's come in about who you are and what your responsibilities are and where we're there to help. And so it's an educational process all the time. It never ends. Right,
0: right. And the fact that you're dealing with people who are in their teens to early 20s, which is generally a group that gets more attention when it comes to crime stats in oh, general. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah.
1: And, and I used to love doing the uh, the introduction on um, accepted student days. And parents would come up to me and after a 20-minute talk and say, it's really nice to hear from you. It's really nice to meet you. Um, I hope I never hear your name again. I hope I never see you again, <laughs> um, which I took in a complimentary way. But they, um, uh, but they all would. They, a lot of the people had questions because of what you say. They, they came from. My set, my college setting was a, a heavily urban setting and, you know, deep in the heart of Boston. And um, a lot of these kids were coming from environments where that were – whether they were suburban or farmland or whatever the case may be. And suddenly I'm dropping my kid off in the big city. And you know what? When you're spending that kind of money to educate your child – you have, you're sort of entering into a contract with the university that I'm sending my child and putting them in your in your your good hands, and my expectation is that you keep them safe as best you can, and that's a whole. I don't think people really see it that way all the time.
0: I, I think you're right. And we're in a great laboratory for this in the New England area, particularly in Boston where this podcast is emanating from because it is the center of the universe in yeah. terms of academia. And you've got all kinds of uh, schools. You've got trade style schools, art schools, design schools, engineering schools. So it's, it's not uh, cookie cutter by any stretch of the imagination.
1: No, no not at all. Not at all. And you've got smaller schools and you've got very large schools and um, people migrate from one place to the other on the weekends. Um, One of the places that we had and we'll talk about a little bit um, when it comes to community policing was Mission Hill um, is a a great, huge neighborhood full of three-deckers and two-family houses that are— in many cases, rented out by college students from all the different colleges in Boston. So you had a.
0: As I'm thinking about this, my mind is spinning. I'm thinking about people who drive their cars to campus. That <laughs> alone is the responsibility of them, but also the police have to be aware of all of that. And and before we move too far along, you know, we're not operating in a bubble here, right? Police departments that are uh, optioned by the schools still. Involve themselves with the local police department. Let's say the oh. BPD or the CPD.
1: Absolutely, a huge part of the community policing, and we'll talk. We're going to talk about a lot of it in, in our partnerships with with other people, with our mm. stakeholders, for lack of a better term. Um, but we had, uh, we, well, and I say we had to, we're in, we're in Boston. So we're going to work with the Boston police department and we had a great relationship. And in, in our case, it was for the most part, the, the offices in the area B2. We had a great understanding of one another. Our cruises had Boston radios. And oftentimes, we were in the location where the incident was taking place, so we were on scene first.
0: I was telling you about my college experience many, many years ago in a suburban, small campus, 1,000 students maximum, and we had one security officer who traveled around in one car. Things have changed a lot in 40-plus years, obviously. But let's talk a little bit about who these people are who are engaged as uh, police, campus police, because they are – an important contingent of folks who have some training here.
1: They they really are. And when I was younger, the campus police department was made up mostly of retired police officers or retired teachers. And they were looking for a little something on the side and was more of a security job than it was anything else. And that has grown um, for for many, many reasons into full-blown full-time police departments. And um, the people that migrate Mm. to it um, for any different number of reasons, um, some come in, honestly, because most colleges will offer you a free education. So you've got people that have a high school diploma or an associates or whatever come on board and get their advanced degrees while they're there. And in some cases, move on. But in most cases, don't. Most.
0: I would love you to comment on this. Most people who think, oh, this must be a cushy, easy job to be a campus cop in some suburban or urban area – and not, s- not necessarily the case. Not but.
1: necessarily the case at all. Yeah. Um, and again, it depends on the campus and the location. Um, but I can tell you from where I was, um, we had well, two things. We were part of a, a group called the Colleges of the Fenway, which was five separate colleges, with all have their own their their. Um, Sort of their own agendas, right? They're all run, you know, their own board of trustees. Each one has their own president, and each one has their their um, their way of running their business. Mm -hmm. And yet, we our students could all interoperate with the other ones, taking classes at different schools, eating in different cafeterias. Um, We, as a group, each department had their own, each school had their own police department. Um, We all got along really well because there were times there would be. Functions on different campuses where we would show up and, you know, assist the other ones, you know, whether it was graduation or, or, you know, a concert or something like that. Um, but we all got along well because we needed one another. Mm. And yet, you, um, you know, we all follow up, you know, no matter wh- where you are as a police department, you follow the people that hired you. So um, one school that was that literally their two massive dormitories were right in the middle of my campus. And that was an unarmed police department, mm-hmm. and so we had to deal with issues that were on their department. And if it was a safety issue that that really, you know, uh, had violence or had the, the the possibility of violence, it was more us for us to step up and assist those people because we were armed.
0: I want to talk more about that, but I want to not leave without asking you a more general question about trends. In the old days, back in the day, as we say, yeah. it was responding to a complaint or reacting to something. How has that changed in the sense that it's more proactive, much more proactive today?
1: I, I think historically yeah, – first of all, historically you're correct. But we've learned that it's not an us against them or it's not – we're the warriors and not we're not your guardians. And we are – I mean our primary job as we see it now is to be the guardian. To help to be there to, to keep people safe, and when the time comes to have to be a warrior, you've got to be the warrior. So we kind of wear both hats, mm. and sometimes it's it's hard for people to either see it that way, or even for police officers to accept it that way, right? Um, in part of it has to do with when you became a police officer and where we are now. But although I I've seen a general trend that I absolutely love in policing, where the acceptance of all of these new sort of programs or perspectives um, are very well received um, by the great right. majority of, of police officers. People were confusing community policing with, you, you know, the, the police athletic programs and the, uh, the those kind of things, the open houses and things. Those are very, very important. And they're a segment of community policing, but that's not really what community policing is. Community policing is engaging with all of the people, all of the so-called stakeholders, not telling them what we're going to do, but listening to them, and their perspectives, and their rationale, why they want to do things in a certain way. And then at the end of the day, if we can all sit and have dialogue, and we can all have respect and trust with one another, then we carry out something that is beneficial to to both parties. And being proactive is so much more
0: positive than just being reactive. It's a listening game that something that people don't do a lot of these days, but Mm -hmm. it's so important in this realm. So let's circle back to the very important issue of armed versus unarmed officers Mm -hmm. on campuses. And let's put it all into perspective. It's a different era. It's 2023. Violence has picked up everywhere and uh, drugs are a problem everywhere as they Mm -hmm. always have been. Some campuses, even within the range you're talking about, within the physical area you're talking about, are staffed with professionals who are not allowed to carry weapons. Others are. What is the impact of that? I would, on a personal level, I wouldn't be a pol- I wouldn't wear a badge and
1: I wouldn't have police written on my car if I wasn't armed. because when you see that, you have an expectation that the, the police officer that's coming to offer aid, is going to be armed, It's going to keep you safe. Um, and me, as a police officer, I wanna know that I'm gonna be safe because if I have to engage, I need to engage. I'm not gonna turn and run. But if I'm not armed with anything more than a stick or maybe a, a, a little jar of mace on my hip, um, I, I don't think I can do my job correctly.
0: What's the argument, and I'm sure you've been in rooms where these arguments have been made, but what's the basic argument against arming campus police?
1: I'm gonna go out on a limb with this one, all right? But it has to do with conversations I've had with people. They don't they don't understand. Um, they see what they see in the press. They see George Floyd. They see a couple of other incidents in the nation. They paint us with a incredibly broad brush. Mm-hmm. And I feel we're uh, well, we're just campus cops. We're we're undertrained. We don't know what we're doing. When in fact, in Massachusetts, you can't be a campus police officer unless you are a sworn certified police officer. And under the Police Reform Act, they have the same powers. As every other police officer does in the state, and the same responsibilities, not just powers. If yesterday the Boston Globe published um, a report that came out from the um, from the Post Committee of, I don't know it's one hundred and twenty-five pages long of every wrongdoing that's ever been happened in a police department where an officer was was um, brought up on charges or whatever the case may be. Um, but included in that were all the campus police as well because they are police officers. They are not sworn security. And
0: again, uh, I'm not speaking for anyone else but myself. I did not know that that was the case. I I was under the assumption, as I think many people are, that they are in the same league as security personnel from a private company.
1: No, not at all.
0: But I think this is a point that I'm glad you're making it. And I'm glad I hope other college officials make it regularly that these are fully trained and and professional officers. You have
1: to be academy trained.
0: The law says you
1: have to be academy mm-hmm. trained. And um, that doesn't mean that they can't – some some campuses will hire security officers. For the most part – and again, I'm being general here – they will sit at the desk in the dormitory and check people in and check people out. When I was at, at Wentworth on – on evenings and nights, each dormitory had a security officer, and they had a walkie-talkie from us. And if there was any sort of a problem, they would call us right away, and we'd go over. And we'd go over every hour or two anyway just to mm-hmm. check in with them. Um, so there is some of that, some security personnel, private security companies. Some, some college campuses hire full-time people um, to, to do security jobs. So they are unarmed, uh, and they are not trained at that same level.
0: We lived through 2013 in the Boston bombing, and we lost a police officer from MIT who was armed but was ambushed and killed and murdered. Well, that was a particular situation, but imagine a group of officers who are unarmed facing that kind of situation. Somebody could stop somebody in that case, but if they're not armed officially, it can be very, very difficult.
1: No, and, and again, the public perception is, well, why are we on those guys, right? They're trained. We go to the range a couple of times a year, um, you know, on and on with, with, with our ability and, and understanding of the weapon. Um, I can't remember the last time a campus police officer was involved in a shooting. So some would say, then then why do they need guns? Well, sometimes because you're armed. There it, won't be a shooting. There won't be a because shooting. It you're puts armed. it down. Exactly.
0: What, what about and, – and I don't know if this is a question you can answer specifically, but just the general attitude of people in that demographic age range to police officers, anyone in a uniform. It seems as though the respect for those in uniform has diminished greatly and sadly I would imagine but I may be wrong maybe a situation on campuses around the country as well. It,
1: it is. And that's you know I like to say I can speak from a, a base of knowledge and I do but I have to admit that when the George Floyd incident took place that's when I was leaving the college and going back to teaching and I know I know it's different but I I can't comment on particular things but but it's society has less respect for for police than they ever have in my career anyway, and that's 50 years. So one of the different things, and hopefully we'll get into a little bit more on the community policing end of it, is the outreach that that it's unfortunate that it has to be the police to take the, the, um, the first step. But the only way we're going to get there is if we take the first step. So mm. I was blessed that when I went, to to Wentworth, I didn't know what to expect of the people that, that were going to, that were on the department already. And I was unbelievably encouraged, I guess, happy, pleased at the ability that they not only showed, but their willingness and the desire to work within the people that they were with every day. You're standing in front of people, you're walking around people, and they engaged with everybody. They really did. And so the student body was very positive towards police. I'm not saying everybody, but in general, yeah. the the student body was very respectful and very happy that I, we were there and available.
0: That's where the the use of community policing in the appropriate way makes such a difference. And we're going to talk with some of your colleagues in the area of mm-hmm. community policing to get more detail. Yeah, we've on got that. some
1: good some good guests lined up that um, I'm really people that I really look up to when it comes to community policing. What engagement.
0: generally, Bill? What kind of um, legal powers do police officers uh, on campuses have, in other words, to make arrests or to uh, follow up with legal proceedings? What, what's their so, code there?
1: like any police department, you're limited to your jurisdiction, right? So if I am a Newton police officer, for example. I am doing the policing within the four corners of that community, and I don't have police powers necessarily. People will argue with me about that in other communities. If there's a, a continuation of a, of a pursuit or something like that, there are now what they call LEX in Massachusetts, law enforcement councils, which is a combination of, of anywhere from 10 to 50 police departments, um, and they're calling each other usually for specific things like SWAT teams and... Um, Dive teams and things along, along that nature, but but they can count on one another. The, the the funny thing in Massachusetts is you're limited in your jurisdiction with the exception of the state police or any state policing agency. You've got full powers in Envy City and town. But what a lot of people do, and this is what we did in the colleges, is the sheriffs can grant you the power. They make you a deputy sheriff. They sway you in as a deputy sheriff. Uh, and then you can take your powers beyond your campus. But you kind of do it with a, with a wink and a nod and an understanding that, for example, if my officers at Wentworth needed to go up on Mission Hill to do an interview or to be involved in something up there where we're asked to, to join with the Boston police, they know that they've got the powers to do that. But we also respect the fact that we were granted that power and weren't out running radar on Huntington Ave or... You know, uh, we, w- we would go into the, the adjoining or abutting, for example. We had a housing development that um, had its share of crime, uh, as in a city places might. And oftentimes we were the first ones on scene because it was 20 steps away. But assisted BP immediately backed away. Because it was their case to to handle. We'd Mm -hmm. go to court as witnesses, et cetera, uh, and render first aid because in in the case of Wentworth, and this is one of the things I was incredibly surprised by and proud of, every officer at that time was an EMT. Mm. So you could feel comfortable that, you know, you weren't bringing an ambulance on campus for a cut finger, but with a technical school where you had a lot of laboratories, et cetera, we were responding to calls all the time. For When I say relatively minor things, but if we needed an ambulance, we called an ambulance. But um, people fell. People got hurt on campus. People fainted. And and, uh, we needed AEDs. Well, we had them in our cruises. And so we were very capable to handle any of those incidents. And if it was a major incident, we could handle that. And like any police department, we then summons the the ambulance and the the fire or whoever was you know, in the community, prefer the advanced.
0: One of the things that uh, we've learned over the last several years, maybe decades, is the, uh, the alarming rise of sexual assaults on campuses Also, uh, let's look at Idaho, that horrific case of a multiple murder, and the trial is now ongoing as we record this. So violent cases, violence that can occur on campus can be just as violent and vile as anywhere else. The other issue is, and you write about this in your article, the increase in uh, incidence of mental illness and and having that impact people and that students and and their friends and so forth – not only do police officers in the communities around us have to be better trained, but I imagine that the community policing on campus, i have got to be aware of all this.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that I was, again, I keep saying most proud of, but um, when I first went there, I was told by someone that there were a couple of people that we, I absolutely was not going to be able to get along with. And I count these two people as two of my closest friends now hmm. because it's all in how you approach things, right? And there was a standoffishness of, you know, the, the, the cops versus the community, and they're going to come in, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, and maybe there was some history there, um, but um, in, the, in the way that their offices dealt with students and, and such. And then it became even a much bigger situation, and all college campuses are seeing this, and the mental health issues, and um, the amount of, of um, you, know, you know, for any number of reasons. I, I can sit here and point out 20 different reasons, but that require— Um, some pretty acute quick care as well as, in some cases, hospitalization. Um, But you train trained to that. Um, You're acutely aware of it. Um, The woman that was the director of wellness uh, was always a phone call away, Mm -hmm. and and that that went both ways. I don't know know how the woman ever got a night's sleep because at 3 o'clock in the morning (laughs) on Friday and Saturday, she was on the phone with us. Absolutely. That's
0: That's the peak time. Yeah right and and
1: and it, it became a real high level of trust um between us um and again and the same with the dean of students you know what I mean I came to respect them not that I didn't respect them I didn't know them But the more I got to know them, and the more we got to work side by side on so many different issues, that we I'm not saying we always had, you know, I like to say we probably never voted for the same candidate, you know, and we probably um, wouldn't see eye to eye on certain social issues. But when it came to our campus and our students, we saw eye to eye on everything, and we respected each other's role and and decision making.
0: Your life and career is is all about understanding human nature, and this would be a perfect thing to sort of summarize in your conclusion in this very important piece you wrote. You talk about the SSI, not Social Security here, but <laughs> Student Satisfaction Inventory. And I thought this was wonderful to read because it, it reestablishes our faith in humanity to know what these kids were talking about. It's on the next to the last page, I mm-hmm. believe. And I'll just basically ask you to summarize what was found in 2018. I don't think a lot's changed in terms of the highest satisfaction on campus. Bill.
1: It, it was a moment of tremendous pride for me when this thing came out. Um, it's a it, just to, to sort of summarize. It's a um, it's a nationwide survey that they do with 200 different colleges. It's not a mandatory one, but 200 colleges sign on to it, and it asks a myriad of questions that go all the way from, you know, from the classroom to the dormitory to the food on campus to the. We were a cooperative education school, and and that you know gets really really high marks. Um, you know, the professors, all, all of the different things come into it. But but a, a couple of the questions had to do primarily with public safety. And at the end of the day, um, when that report came out, and again, it's 2018, so there's, there's been a few years in between. I don't think it will have changed because the people that were there when I was there are still there. So when they, they, they broke it out and they broke it down, um, it turned out that of of all of the answers in the top five, um, the the number one and the number five – were both directed directly to public safety. It, it's just a snapshot, and it's just a, you know, a, a student survey. But where they, they said the number one thing, and we didn't really talk about this, but was student notific- uh, notif- WIT uh, alert emergency notifications. They're timely and they're informative. Um, this is a, a requirement by Clery, uh, the Clery Act that there be a system where we are able to notify students about anything that's ongoing. That's a public safety issue. I think we were quicker than anybody else to uh, activate this system. And it wasn't always just on our campus. Sometimes it was something going on on another campus. But we wanted everybody to know, you know, there's police activity. We didn't get in depth about things, but there's police activity. Stay out of this area, stay out of that way. Out of that, a couple of times it was, you know, shelter in place because there was a shooting mm. on the edge of campus. Uh, and there was an active pursuit. So, but we let them know right away. And I know we were quicker than anybody else. And sometimes I got criticism from other places about it. And I was never criticized by my boss for it. And uh, the students enjoyed that. There were some unfortunate issues where other colleges weren't putting it out, and their students were up in arms because the WIT students were writing them on Facebook that we got something going on here. That was the number one. The number five is that the the staff respond quickly in emergencies. And we had a lot of kudos for that, like I said, because people were EMTs. They were quick to rush in and render aid and not stand back and make a uh, a radio call for an ambulance. They were able to, you know— I don't, mm. you know, put on compresses, do all those different things. But because we're always circulating on campus, somebody would faint in a classroom. And we were there within a minute, you know. Mm. And, and I think we won over a lot of administration and faculty um, who, again, you know, we all have our opinions about different, different people and different occupations, came to our aid and mm. uh, were very, very positive.
0: Well, you referred to— It is safety, safety officers, people who are protecting the safety. And ultimately, when you think about college and all the issues related to it from tuition to mental health to drugs, it's still somebody's kid, somebody's kid. And, you, you know, you and your colleagues and people in your field are sworn to do their duty to protect these individuals. And the yep. staff and the crew and everybody involved, the professors. But it's I think if that is the notion that the messaging that we've gotten through on this podcast and that you're doing every day out in the out in the world, and mm-hmm. that's a very very positive thing.
1: Yeah, and and I'm, I'll be honest, someday somebody's going to develop a better word than fun because people get upset when I use the word <laughs> fun. But a great part of coming to work every single day is being able to be in that that sort of a position. And yeah, guys, my guys would come to me all the time. Hey, can we take up a collection uh, at at Christmas time? And get some toys for some of the kids that are, you know, the, the um, underprivileged, for, yeah. for lack of a better term. And we did that, you know, and we'd go over a couple of guys in uniform in a cruiser and, and uh, take the Boston police would come with us and distribute some toys, some small-time stuff in certain ways and, and put a minor dent in your pocketbook. But it was it – was I'll, I'll
0: loan you a word. You can have it free of charge okay. and interest. Passion.
1: Ah, thank you. All right. It is fun when
0: you're involved in your passions. Makes the heart feel warm when you can do something for somebody or prevent something from happening. It's always the the stuff we don't hear about that we're most happy to know about after the fact. You're exactly
1: right. (laughs) How do you you prove you're doing your job um, when you prevented something from happening?
0: Let's do this before we close out on this episode. Without getting too specific because there are a lot of things in the works, we're going to follow up on – community policing for sure with some outstanding mm-hmm. people and uh, you want to yeah. give us a preview as to who's in the works so
1: one of, one of the the people i i've most admired in my in my professional career is a gentleman by the name of Paul Joyce who went on uh, he was a Boston police officer he headed up the gang unit back in the, uh, the the early 90s back at a time when boston had a huge gang problem not that we don't still have some issues nothing like it was they mm. they were averaging well over 100 homicides every year, and that now has been reduced almost in half. But Paul took it upon himself. Um, community policing was just kind of becoming a term. And, we, you know, like I said, we still thought ice cream trucks and, and uh, volleyball. He understood the, the need for engagement, not just between the police telling the community what they were going to do to make their community better, but but bringing together in, in, in that time the religious leaders to get them on board and to listen, you know, Talking is one thing, but we never learn from talking. We only learn from listening and really listening. But but understanding that our idea, perhaps, we're just going to go in and we'll lock up every kid that's selling drugs. This is a time and a place, but that also can be real harmful to the community you know, there's a better way of going and approaching that and trying to, to eradicate the drug issues or lessen the drug issues. So anyway, he 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 became, in my opinion, you know, the the, the great leader of the time, mm-hmm. if you will. And had tremendous, he still does have tremendous respect, more than willing to come in and talk about community engagement at the time then and where it is now. And one of the other great parts about Paul is he retired now and he heads up the uh, criminal justice program down at Salvary, Virginia College in Rhode Island. Uh, I've asked him if he'll talk a lot about how college education has changed, so that when we're preparing these students to come into the, the fields of law enforcement and related case, you know, related occupations, their view is different than the view I was given in 1970 about what cops, what the role was of cops. He presents very well from a couple of different angles. And then um, we also have a guest, one by the name of Kristen Zeman, who advanced through the ranks in Aurora, Illinois, from a cadet up through uh, being the chief. And uh, her perspective, um, not just—and I don't want to— buttonhole her as someone who's going to come in and give perspectives of a woman. She certainly will, but that's she's a police officer first um, when it comes to talking about these things and the way that she was able to work within her department and bring along the community engagement and how well served that was. In addition to that, now she's retired uh, from Aurora. Um, She's written a book, which is a fabulous book, and it has to do with leadership. And leadership in law enforcement, there never is one little box to tick or ten box If you do these ten things, you're going to be a leader. There's a difference between being an administrator, you know, who's got a stuff on their shoulder that indicates they're the chief, and being a leader. And um, Kristen is a true leader um, and uh, um, speaks at a lot of conferences now. Again, has written what I thought was a very well-written book. The thing I love about her book is she she says I expose every watt in my life and in my career and how, you know, I used to say to people, if you went a little bit grimy um, somewhere in your life, then you can't understand other people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And for me, growing up in the city, and I'm not saying I was grimy or I got in a lot of trouble, and I didn't, but I ex- was exposed to things that a lot of people generally aren't. And right. it made it— right easy for me to understand people's problems.
0: yeah, life experience uh, yeah. for all of us, but particularly as I said earlier, for folks who have to have to know human nature to yeah. be successful. can't wait to meet those amazing folks yeah. and uh, to talk further about this. And again, this is a message for both people in the field thinking about joining the police field, which is still a very honorable profession. and those people like uh, like yours truly, who are, yep the civilians who need and want to know more about what's going on.
1: I I think, I don't think, I know from the purpose behind this podcast, all of these podcasts is to educate and at the same time, you know, illuminate who police are and what our responsibilities are and what you can expect from us and not. So if you're going to be down about an activity that a police officer took, at least have an understanding of the broad Mm -hmm. picture and then, and then put that into perspective as we go along and we're going to go from these whole areas we're going to get into cold cases we're going to get into investigations we're going to get into forensic science we're going to get into legal issues there's a there's a you know we don't have one issue or one area that we're just going to focus on but i think what we've been setting out here in the last few weeks and we'll continue to is is we're building a base we're we're, we're building a strong foundation so that if people are listening to these broadcasts, when we start getting into the other things, they'll have a base of knowledge that they can work from. And um, I've always been huge on that. When I teach classes, Um, As recently as yesterday, I teach foundation first. It's like I always say, if you're a kid and you go to summer camp for baseball, they're going to teach you how to pitch and catch and they're going to teach you how to run the bases. But if they don't teach you the rules first, then how do you know Mm. when to stop running? And how do you know when a ball's a foul ball? Or how do you know when your toe is out of line? You know what I mean? So if you understand the rules, then then it's easier to play the game. So I'm kind of laying out a foundation i think here we are of understanding and in, in, in the rules that we rules we're bound by there's there's reasons why we do some of the things that we do and there's reasons we don't do some of the things you wish we did but the, the other thing a point i want to make so the name of the podcast is powers on policing the name of the website is powers on policing i kept it simple for all of us makes it easy for me too right. um but but there is a there is a point and it's on the front page that if you want to write to us, with um, criticisms, with support, with questions about other kinds of podcast, uh, other um, potential guests, potential guests, and right. things like that. Uh, uh, we want to hear from you. Mm. I'm, I don't want to. We don't want to be in a vacuum, right? We want to. It's not just my ideas or your ideas. It's our ideas, and our includes our community, very much like community policing, right? Yeah. It's. Tell us what you want and we will deliver on that. If you want explanations about certain things, I'm more than happy to do that. I've been teaching criminal procedure for decades. I've got people I can rely on to help um, firm me up to the moment. And, you know, people also need to understand that we're in Massachusetts. And so when I speak, I kind of speak from Massachusetts, but that doesn't mean I don't have a broader understanding of the country, but it's only a broad understanding. The laws in Ohio may be different than the laws in Idaho, which may be different than the laws somewhere else. And the way we do it here may be different, but the bottom line is always the same. It just may be a different aspect.
0: Well, you bring a lot of energy to it, and I know uh, more and more people will find it, follow it, and subscribe and download. Bill, thank you as always. We look forward to many more great discussions.
1: Thanks, Jordan. Looking forward to it.
0: You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast, available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.